Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D and the conclusion of our interview with physicist and space radiation expert Jeff Chancellor. Jeff is an assistant professor of physics at Louisiana State University with research interests in applications of how heavy ion radiation interacts with soft and condensed matter for ground-based analogs, manned spaceflight vehicle structure, shielding, and clinical health care. Part three of our interview starts with a discussion of options for radiation shielding of astronauts during interplanetary travel and while on the surface of either the Moon or Mars. We'll discuss how certain radiation risks may vary according to the solar cycle, and then we'll transition to radiation event risk prediction, which at best is an evolving and still somewhat unpredictable discipline. We'll learn about how NASA's tolerance for space radiation risk is evolving particularly in relation to short-term risks to crew, and we'll conclude with a few more provocative questions for Jeff. Let's actually talk about shielding. <laughs> Been wanting to talk about that for a while, but we got sidetracked with some other very interesting topics. So shielding, you know, the, the big thing I always think about is burying the halves on the lunar surface in regolith. Um, and I'm curious about, is that is that probably how it's going to be done on the lunar surface? And then secondly, the other question I have is you never hear about that for Mars. And I don't really know too much about the difference between lunar regolith and Martian soil. I know Martian soil is much more caustic um, for a number of reasons, but um, curious if it would have the same protective value as, as regolith potentially does. That's a good question. I don't know. I um, I'd always heard that uh, putting Mars uh, regolith on top of your hab was a good idea, uh, Eleanor. I've I'd never heard that, you know, that that was a different. There was a different approach, Mars versus the Moon. Yeah, I I don't know. I was just you know just sort of thinking about that, um, you know, again this afternoon, and uh, and then I I was wondering because it's of more caustic. The soil is more caustic or more, you know, pretty oxidative, if I recall, pretty reactive. Would that um, be the best thing to, like, you know, shovel a bunch of that highly reactive stuff on top of a hab? I mean, maybe you'd be eating through the hab much quicker. I don't know. Yeah, so it, so the reason we know a lot about it, about the lunar surface, is because we spent several years specifically during the Constellation program before it got canceled looking at that design concepts for habitats, for the rovers, and how we were going to protect the astronauts from the, you know, the cosmic ray environment. And what could we use as an absorber for the neutrons created when they interact with the regolith? Whether or not they've done an extensive study of that same kind on Mars, I, I honestly don't know. I haven't stumbled across it, or if I did, I don't remember. But it, mass is always the answer to shielding. The problem is with the galactic cosmic rays, just takes so much mass that it's not realistic for spaceflight vehicles. But on the surface, bearing it down, um, I assume a significant amount below the surface could be um, 
a a realistic uh, approach. Interesting that um, that there'd be a certain point where you may make things worse because of the secondary effects, but then it would get better as it got thicker beyond that. Yeah, and 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 that would be because you you you're not limited by mass in that case. You could dig probably as deep as you want on Mars. Right. Um, but I don't know for certain because I don't. I'd, I'd have to look at the material. It's mostly in the Martian soil as a function of depth, and and then think about that um, site. So it'd be an interesting study, and they may have been already had one where they at least uh, modeled it or presumed it, but I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, you might be able to put a couple layers of ice in there too. Right. Yeah. yeah. Water is the like best. That. Yeah, water is the best shield there is uh, because it has a high hydrogen concentration per atom, two per atom, or two per molecule. So it's the best. The best shielding material that I can think of. Well, and then there's been talk about, you know, could you basically develop HABs? Like, I, I don't know about, is it better potentially to develop a HAB like in a in the shadow of a crater on the moon? Or we don't know if there's like lava tubes or whatever down, you know, there are big caverns like they, you know, we assume that there probably are, but that would probably be the best option. It's just develop a hab inside a cave. Right. And, and I think some of the, the recent missions with Artemis, they're looking at going to more of the polar region where you would have um, a similar field for the galactic cosmic ray exposure, but you would have planet shadowing to be used as a natural shield from like anomalous solar particle events. So you're exactly right there. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, so Tom, I think you had a question about, um, differences and risks related to, you know, the solar oh, yeah. minimum and solar During maximum. The solar cycle. How does that, I, cause I know this, when the sun's really active, it can actually decrease the galactic cosmic ray flux. Is that, is that, do I have that understanding correct? Right. For a long time, that was the understanding, but because of the recent, protracted solar minimum, um, there has been an increase in the flux of, of these cosmic ray particles where they're looking at the dose increasing starting around 2017, 2018, up until now. Uh, because that is because as these you have these events on the surface of the sun, it draws out the plasma and it, and it creates the, the density of the magnetic fields, which almost act like a, I guess in a layman's term as a shield from the gcr coming into the um solar system itself yeah strong solar magnetic field where normally we think of the earth's magnetic field right right and typically a solar minimum when there's less activity there's more galactic cosmic ray flux so a higher um dose and then a solar maximum when you have more solar activity it's a minimum that usually goes on an 11 year solar cycle where the difference in dose is about a factor of two. Nice. Two or three. Wow. Yeah. But you'd need to design for both unless you want to just fly at specific times. <laughs> right. But the but a lot some of the if not many of the large I want I don't want to say many, but um there have been an instance where there have been very significant solar particle events during a solar minimum. So it's uh as a matter of fact I think one of the largest measured ones um, in modern times, um, hit the Mars Curiosity rover en route to Mars, and that was either trending down on our solar min or trending up. I don't remember. 
Um, so that just because you're in a solar minimum when you presume there's, there's less activity, it means there's less likelihood more, more of, a, of a solar particle event. But that doesn't mean that there's less likelihood of a large um, solar particle event. Right. The odds are lower until it happens. I actually right. worked on a, a spacecraft called GOES that's one of our uh, space weather monitoring uh, spacecraft. And we had a solar X-ray imager on board. And the sun had a solar X-ray, and it burned out a, a, a row of our of our uh, solar X-ray imager. And the guys who made it were like, well, the sun is can be millions of times brighter. I'm like, yeah, but you knew that before you launched, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> that was frustrating. Yeah, the first radiation detector I know that was put on the surface of Mars was was destroyed by a solar particle event. Um, and I think they said the probability that happened was like somewhere in the one in 10,000 or something. And I just laughed at that. I'm like, well, obviously you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> let's go with one to one. Or, yeah, let's look, let's reevaluate those odds here because it happened. Oh, God. Well, actually, you know, that brings up another question about prediction and space weather. Um, you know, how, how good are we at really predicting these these types of events i mean it because it sounds like you can have a solar minimum and have something spontaneous happen so um you know we we always complain about or we used to complain more than maybe we do today about our standard atmospheric meteorologists messing up the the weather report how often do the space meteorologists or what would you actually call them you know are they they're not meteorologists. What what would you actually call them? And are they um, any, are, have they improved in their ability to predict uh, radiation events? I think they're called space weather experts. I would have to look that up. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure anymore. Um, but I think NASA calls it now casting, um, which is another way of saying we don't know. Um, <laughs> we know we know when it happens. Yeah, um, I, I actually gave this some thought when I was working on a, an idea for a story. And my idea was you need a, a group of sentinel satellites closer in to the sun so that anything that's coming by, you know, it's coming. And you're, you know, you're not predicting that, hey, next week there's going to be a solar flare. You're saying there was a particle event that we didn't see, but it, we noted it here and it's going to be in these areas in this amount of time. Right. And, and that's when we do have those capabilities now, because there's there is satellites at the, the L1 point and those multiple GO satellites. I think they're up to 14 or 15 now. I'm not sure how many are operating at this point. Um, but the problem is, if you if you go back to that TV show, if it's something like the event that happened on TV, where it gets here in 16 to 18 minutes, um, whether or not the crew will be notified in a timely manner is is problematic also um, because by the time the, the you know the person at the the meteorology desk recognizes the event goes it on calls the flight director at nasa who doesn't believe anything he's saying because they haven't so heard of this and this has actually happened before in five to ten years and by the time they get their radiation expert on the phone who doesn't necessarily sit on the console 24 hours and they get to mission control and evaluate it and make the recommendation and convince the flight director that they need to take uh, mitigation strategies. It could be two or three hours or more. Wow. Um, if you, if it's something that's happening and, and moving that fast where it's 
if it's, if it's going to get in low Earth orbit in, in 15 to 20 minutes, you know, before you even have a chance to react, the crew's in the field. Wow. So you, you do need those capabilities. And, and in terms of being able to predict it, we really, we really don't have, and I know there's been efforts over the last 10 years to look at, I know one effort was looking like an increased electron precipitation in the environment as a precursor for um, a solar event. Um, studies were looking at the signature, the relative signature of, of a X-ray flare, um, but nothing I know of has actually proven to be um, capable of predicting an imminent event. As a matter of fact, in 2000, either either 2006 or 2008, I remember being at NASA when STS-114, when that was the bottom of a solar minimum. And I, I do remember that the, the probability of a solar particle event was 1%. And it's only 1% because you can't say there's no probability. So you have to say there's some likelihood of it happening. Um, there actually was a sizable event that hit the station right as the crew um, closed the hatch after their first EVA. And, and the entire time they were operating, like there was nothing to be worried about. Um, and it actually affected the rest of the mission because they had to figure out how to phase and change the timing of the um, the spacewalk so that they were minimizing the amount of dose that they would incur out there. So wow. it's, it's still problematic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that 2006 event, that's what I got, uh, well, the instrument I was working on got burned on. That was actually on my farewell uh, on my farewell plaque. The, oh really? Yeah, that's it, awesome. It's hilarious. They, I was in Mission Control during, or just shortly after that happened. It was okay. a crazy time because oh. no one expected it. And if you remember, Wayne Hell actually wrote a editorial about those crazy guys in at, in the radiation console that showed up out of nowhere, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> just because we don't come off, it doesn't mean we're not here. <laughs> right? Yeah, I distinctly remember the 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 flight controller who was on duty during that arguing. And trying to convince the flight controller, hey, this is serious because it ha there hadn't been an event in a couple of years and people were just not um, aware of what was going on. Just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it's not happening. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That's okay. funny, though. You got instrument fried. Yeah. So, um, OK. So along these lines here, I, I guess I, I was under the impression we had a little better understanding of this because this question then goes into I've heard that one of the, the big questions is. Yeah, we know space we well, okay, we, we believe that space radiation is bad. We know that zero gravity is bad, but the mix of the two could be really bad. So I guess since we're since we're not we're rethink potentially rethinking our radiation levels, we, we don't have any smoking gun that says the mix of the two is really bad. But it's still something lurking out there that we just don't have any information on. Right. And a lot of it is just technical limitations. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you think of science, when you try to when you try to analyze a problem, you want to either numerically or analytically replicate the problem as closely as possible. And if you're doing a laboratory experiment, you want to create an analog that is as similar to that phenomena that you're trying to recur um, to um, simulate um, as close as possible. And we just don't have those capabilities right now. One, it's it's hard to generate the galactic cosmic ray spectrum in a ground-based scenario. And two, um, 
we can't irradiate humans, even though we probably all have colleagues or bosses that we would love to throw inside the beam. It's not <laughs> ethical to do that. So our, the only thing we have, for many reasons, most of them political, NASA uses a mouse model, which is not a human. Matter of fact, there's a lot of things about a mouse model that are biologically unsimilar to humans. You know, the lifespan, the metabolic rate, the body mass, the size of the of the cavity of their their tissue compartment. So, um, and if you That's look at cognitive deficits, they're the the various parts of the brain. I think it's I can't remember which one is con- considered to be the main contributor in humans for cognitive deficit, but they're they're portion of the brain is significantly higher percentage of the brain in a mouse than it is in human cells. It gets really complicated. Right now, we're just kind of stabbing in the dark, um, hoping that we hit the right spot at some point. Um, but I think, I think over the next five to 10 years, I think you'll see a lot of outcomes come that will significantly change that. We do have new capabilities. Um, there's, you know, we've advanced with some of the, the biological and physical technologies over the last five years or so. There's a, a new approach in the space radiation research element at NASA who was looking at the, the past research and saying, hey, this wasn't, wasn't wrong, but it wasn't working. So let's try some things that are a little bit unique and forward looking and see if we can come up with a solution here. We also have a lot of astronauts who have flown in that environment for six months or more who have you know blood samples and plasma samples taking during their entire mission every week and multiple times before their flight and after their flight so there's instances where you can look at changes in their markers pre post and and during their mission itself yeah i have a question too now this you know might be a little controversial but i know that i've read over several years periodically where there's been some research that has been published, NASA-sponsored research, and, you know, talking particularly about the radiation risks with Mars exploration. And Robert Zubrin, of course, is, you know, Mars, well-known Mars evangelist, has frequently commented on the limitations of that work and, you know, obviously championing the opposite conclusion that the, the risks are really not that are being overstated and and we certainly have to stay the course in terms of trying to get to Mars curious about um, you know any comments regarding regarding that I, and I guess what I'm I guess ultimately what I'm asking is does Bob have a point or is he trying to minimize risks that may in fact be present so I'm, I'm familiar with the article you're talking about. And if you read my recent publications, you'll see that I have that same tone to it. Um, I just would not approach it with the same ferocity, I guess you would say. There's a lot that we don't know right now, and we can't prove otherwise. And when you're looking at a risk-adverse agency like NASA, an unknown is a showstopper. Um, I would go out on a limb and say that space radiation the non-acute effects like cardiovascular, cancer, at a reasonable dose are not a risk. But I can't say it with certainty because we can't prove it otherwise. Um, and, I, and I do know there were some negative things said about the space radiation research. And I, I wouldn't argue that some of it led to wrong presumptions. But it was good research based on knowledge 
that we have now in in making i would say logical considerations on how do you interpret that based on what we have in front of us and how we understand it you know science is all science is built on the shoulders of who came before you mm-hmm. and all that stuff that was done prior to me jumping into this 10 years ago is still completely legitimate because I wouldn't be here without that science necessarily proving that this isn't the right approach. So I would, I would, I would probably tone that down a little bit um, and say, it's probably not a risk. Um, He's probably right, but it took a long time for us to get there and say, Hey, you know, we're, we're not doing this right. We should reevaluate it and maybe, open up the floodgates a little bit, which NASA just did. Like, like you mentioned at that um, presentation to the Academy of Science where they were asking for their evaluation and approval of significantly lowering the career exposure um, limits. You, you mean raising, right? Or are we raising? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Lowering the barriers, I guess, is kind of what you were saying. But, right. but they were, they were looking at the, when you're talking about the probabilities, they were talking about going from the 95 percentile, I think to the 60 percentile yeah Um, and that and it wasn't and and based on the discussion we've had here this evening it's it's not unreasonable to have that that discussion based on the fact that so far long-term sequelae really just haven't been observed in with the astronaut core um so it makes sense to at least at least consider that so it's not because I think it's possible people could interpret that um, as self-serving, like, well, we, you know, we're planning on going to the moon and Mars, so therefore let's just lower, you know, let's just lower the threshold, you know, of concern. But that's not, there is some, there is some fact-based element to that decision, or at least questioning that. Right. We wouldn't be able to get to that decision without everything that happened before. Yeah. And and I, and I don't know exactly how long they've been, putting this idea together and making sure they are moving in the right path, but it's been at least a year or two. This isn't something that you woke up one day and say, Hey, we need to, we need to scratch this and focus on something else. This was a very big um, concept that was thought out and as rigorously evaluated to the extent of their knowledge and the scientific community's knowledge as of now. Yeah. But I don't think it's a risk. And all my research is to prove it's not. I can't say it's not a risk until we prove it's other, not a risk otherwise. So in order to get past that, you have to come up with a way of proving that. Until then, you're stuck with what you have. Has there been any consideration of doing some even less extreme things like, you know, organs or body parts that are most prone to cancer? For example, you know, breast cancer in women. I mean, has there been ever any any even theoretical discussion about, hey, you know, should a female astronaut, if they're going on one of these long Martian sojourn, have a prophylactic mastectomy done? Because basically then you're going to take away a huge risk um, to them in terms of cancer. That'd be problematic on so many levels. I mean, that is rife with ethical, ethical overtones. But now you're telling someone they can't continue their career or their job without having their reproductive capabilities (laughs) removed from their bodies. Well, let's let's go with something less. Let's go with an appendix. (laughs) How about how about something less fraught? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I don't think that would ever happen. Um, Okay. 
just because it, you just open up too many cans of worms with that. Yeah. Um, it, I know there have been asked because if you, again, if you go back and read the articles in the public press on Peggy Whitson, I think she mentioned that she had already had that procedure done. So why was she at risk for these type of cancers? But that's not how they evaluate it as a whole. So they didn't respond to that criticism, but I couldn't see them doing that. Um, and, and again, you know, the public perceptions and scientific philosophy changes with time. And so in the future, it could be something they consider, but I, I couldn't imagine that. Oh, fascinating. I have one last question. And I know we we had briefly met when I was um, in Houston, gosh, in pre-pandemic days. Um, but we had a discussion during that medication summit about radiation. I'm curious if there's been any changes to even just shielding, because I think we had talked about the possibility of, you know, do they want to have some sort of shielding with the packs, the med pack that the medications are stored in? And I know there was a fair amount of also discussion about no radiation's been like ruled out as any sort of variable with regards to increased degradation of medications, which I personally did not agree with. I didn't feel that that, I was really challenged by sort of drawing that conclusion, but, um, and that was not something that you had actually said. There were some other people that were discussing that during the summit, but I'm curious if there's been any work, further work that's been done since that summit, um, you know, on medication stability. I, I think there was some ideas to doing a couple experiments at like a, the radiation facility at Brookhaven National Lab, but it's it may have been impeded by the shutdown itself. Um, mm. So I, I would have to inquire about that. I haven't been involved with it, but part of what we, we do in our lab anyway is to look at the efficacy of these type of materials and what is the actual dynamics when it interacts with radiation and how it affects not just the hardware, but perhaps these um, non-biological materials like um, pharmace pharmaceuticals too. Um, I still think it's a hazard. Um, I, I agreed with you. They didn't prove to me that it wasn't radiation wasn't a hazard. Um, but again, it's one of those things you have to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing that was that that was the most interesting, apart from the radiation and that that whole discussion, was the aha moment when we were told that the relative humidity in the station is is so much higher than it is in generally well maybe not from houston on a, on a hot summer day but um that it is relatively high and um you know i know that led to a whole other set of discussions about could that be impacting drug stability in some way shape or form I think it was the humidity levels plus the ambient CO2 level um, that got us thinking about, is there some other strange interaction going on in that environment that you wouldn't necessarily see on Earth? Yeah, I think that was a really interesting question that, that begged an answer. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, in, in, those re in regards to that type of research, we're still just beginning, if you think about it, because for many years, we didn't fly missions for more than a week or two. And so we didn't have a focus in that area because it wasn't a priority. There was other problems to solve and now it's become an issue. And so it's, I still think there's a lot of work to be done to, to show that all those factors don't um, affect the efficacy of, you know, Tylenol or your radiation countermeasure two years into your mission to Mars. Yeah. 
Oh, so uh, one other one other question just occurred to me. So the idea of if we're going to go beyond the Earth's magnetosphere, we should probably do some sort of test outside, like in cislunar space or something like that, some sort of exposure test to see if these countermeasures work. Exactly. I mean, that that would be I mean, that's the process in clinical medicine let alone for spaceflight. So you would, but in spaceflight, we would have to understand what the mechanisms and pathways were to develop those countermeasures before we could even test them. Yeah. And that's, and if you look at my discipline now, it's the, it's almost like the entire discipline is taking a step back and saying, okay, how do we do this differently? And I think based on some recent findings and advances, you may see something come out sooner than later where we will be testing some of these countermeasures. And we're looking at flying astronauts to the moon for, um, not extended um, periods, but for longer periods. And you're having astronauts stay longer and longer on the space station. And the environment's very similar, um, cislunar or interplanetary space. So it's a good, it's a great analog for prepping us for the moon and for Mars. Cool. I guess I thought that the magnetic field made a difference in the uh, the solar and the galactic cosmic ray is enough that, that decreased uh, the what uh, the space station did for us. But I guess not. Um, it, well, it decreases the the intensity of it, but the field is quite similar. There was a recent paper just, I think, early last year that where they took measurements on, they had measurements from the Curiosity rover and sitting on Mars and from the crater detector, which is in lunar orbit. And then they had measurements in the ISS in the U.S. lab and I think in the Columbus module over a six to eight month period. And they showed at high latitudes, it was basically the same spectrum, just slightly attenuated. Okay, um, so you just multiply it by 0.8 or some value, then you get what, what they're being exposed to in Earth. Right. It's a polyenergetic uh, um, heavy ion spectrum. I don't remember exactly what the scale was, but it was very similar. So it's a feasible analog. Hmm. Cool. That's great news. And, and so, you know, it, just to let you know, we have a paper, me and some of my collaborators, coming out probably in April that I think we did a pretty good job of trying to summarize all these problems and explain the difficulty of the nature. Because in, in space radiation, you're talking about space physics, aeronautics, um, mechanics, nuclear physics, biology, radiation biology, clinical medicine, all these different aspects trying to integrate together. But I think we did a pretty good job of summarizing it. I thought they said it was going to be the first, second week of April, but I'll probably post it to my website soon. But it's called Everything You Want to Know About Space Radiation, But We're Afraid to Ask. So if anybody more, has more curiosity to learn about this or if I didn't cover something, they could probably pick that up and hopefully find something um, that answers their problem. That's great. And where will it be published? Um, Journal okay. of Environmental Science and Health, Part C. Um, and it's a special issue on space radiation. But I did pay, have it published open source. So it's available to the public too. Oh, that's great. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, Tom, do you have any other questions? I think I'm about all questioned out. No, no. It's been a great, a great chat. I, uh, I thought we knew more. <laughs> <laughs> that's really what I'm, I think the conclusion of this is. Wow. We don't know much, do we? <laughs> right. And I kind of like that. And I don't. It's frustrating because I want to solve the problem, move on to something else. But at the same time, it keeps life interesting for me. Yeah. Yeah, you you that's job security. Right. All right. Well, it was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really really interesting and uh I'm so glad it, that uh, I reached out to you. So, uh fantastic. You too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
We hope you enjoyed part three of our interview with physicist and space radiation expert, Dr. Jeff Chancellor. If you're interested in reading the open access review on space radiation that he and his colleagues have just published, check out the April 27, 2021 issue of the Journal of Environmental Science and Health, Part C, pages 113 to 128, for the article entitled, Everything You Wanted to Know About Space Radiation But Were Afraid to Ask. Until next time, for co-hosts Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.